Uh, Mantle spent his entire career playing with the New York Yankees. Any Yankees fans in the house? Ushers, please escort them out the building. Uh, Mantle had uh, a number of streaks and slumps in the game of baseball and in life. A streak is a good thing for a baseball player. A streak is when a player gets a hit to get on base time after time after time, game after game after game. And the record for the hitting streak is held by Joe DiMaggio, another Yankee, who in 1941 got a hit to get on base 56 times straight. That's a streak. That's a good thing. Then there's the slump, which is not such a good thing. The baseball slump happens when a player fails to get a hit to get on base time after time after time, game after game after game. The record for the slump is held by Craig Consell, who in 2011 went zero for 45. That's bad. Oftentimes in baseball, a, a player will go from a hitting streak to a slump, and then either back down to minor league baseball or out of the game of baseball altogether. Happens all the time. Streak to slump than out of the game. Here's an example, Joe Charbonneau. Joe uh, Charbonneau, uh, they called him Super Joe. Looked like he was going to be the savior of the Cleveland Indians franchise. He was a bit eccentric, known for opening beer bottles with his eye sockets and doing his own dental work. Not all there. And uh, in 1980, he had his first year. Hit 23 home runs. His batting average was 289. Had a great rookie season received the American League Rookie of the Year Award. But then, uh, by 1984, just four years later, Joe had endured a few slumps, and by, by 1984, Charbonneau was out of the game of baseball altogether. Streak to slump, then out of the game. Happens all the time in baseball. Happens all the time in the church, too. You know anybody, maybe you're the person, who was once on a spiritual streak full of passionate love for God, who at some point in the journey hits a wall and ends up in some sort of spiritual slump and either ends up in minor league Christian living or out of the church altogether. You know someone like that? I do. He's one of the heroes of the biblical story, and his name is David. David starts out in his journey with God as a teenager and as a young man on a spiritual streak. I mean, this guy is full of passionate desire for God. He's, he's got a one-track mind, God. And you see this in the story with Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, uh, where David's just a kid, just a shepherd boy, and he sees this giant Goliath uh, defying the armies of God, blaspheming the name of God, and David's like, let me at him. A slumping player once asked Yogi Berra for advice on how to get out of the hitting slump, and Yogi Berra said, if you can see the ball, hit it. <laughs> David could see nothing but God. 
and he hit the ball out of the park every time, spiritually speaking. But then something happens to David. In 2 Samuel 5, uh, he becomes king at the age of 30. And on the pinnacle of his success that the spiritual streak got him to, complacency sets in. And it's like David outgrows his need for God. He, he becomes too big for his britches. He hits a wall. It looks like he has a, a spiritual midlife crisis, a slump. And David discovers that in the midst of his spiritual slump, the most significant Goliath he will face is not Goliath, not the Philistines, not King Saul, not the Ammonites. The greatest Goliath David must conquer in the midst of his slump is David because David nearly destroyed David. Every one of us uh, in this room probably has at least one chapter, maybe two, maybe more, in the story of our lives that we'd like to just rip out, throw away. For David, it's 2 Samuel 11, which Daniel just recited so eloquently. David sent his army out at a time when the king is supposed to go out to the war with the army. David sends out the army to fight his battles and he stays uh, back in Jerusalem in the safety of the palace. He's bored in his boxers and he goes on the rooftop of the palace looking for something, anything to make him feel again. And he sees a woman, a beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath and he lusts after her. It's got to have her. Finds out she's married, doesn't care, has her over, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He's got to cover it up, the adultery. So he has Uriah, her husband, killed. And then at the very end of this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad chapter in David's life, the last sentence in 2 Samuel 11 is a horrific headline for this slumping player. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We focus a lot on the adultery and the murder, but it really starts with boredom. When his army's going out to war, David's staying home in the palace. Let's remember that David's spiritual gift was not teaching second grade Sunday school. It wasn't preaching. It wasn't singing. He could sing, though. It wasn't administrating, perhaps. His main spiritual gift was fighting. Some of you have that same spiritual gift. I've seen your post on Facebook. You can fight too. David, uh, the fact that he's not using his gift for war and he's staying home in the palace while the army's fighting his battle is indicative of his slump. He's stuck. He's bored with his use of his gifts. He's bored with God. And that's the trouble. How does somebody like David on a spiritual streak end up in a spiritual slump all of a sudden, committing adultery than murder. It didn't happen all of a sudden, actually. David's slump didn't start in 2 Samuel 11. It actually started in 2 Samuel 6. Up until that point, 2 Samuel 5, when David becomes king, at the age of 30, we read this phrase that tracks with a pattern in David's life. Five times we read the phrase, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Five times. But when he becomes king, 
we don't see the phrase anymore. It's like David, again, outgrows his need for God. And David discovers that a lack of inquiry leads to a lack of intimacy. The same is true in marriage, in any relationship. Couples that don't inquire of each other, don't experience intimacy. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the silly inquiries like, do these pants make me look frumpy? I'm talking about, how are we doing as a couple? Is our love going deeper as we grow older? Those kinds of inquiries. Well, the lack of inquiry led to a lack of intimacy that gave David the distance from God that made God seem smaller than the Goliaths all around him. And in that distance, David was able to do the unthinkable. Adultery, then murder to cover it up. He's hit a low. He's in a slump. I wonder how many of us in this room, and maybe we haven't had language for it, are in a spiritual slump. Maybe your relationship with Christ can be characterized more by coexistence than intimacy. You share the chores, pay the bills together, maybe a passing peck on the cheek, but that's it. There are lots of Christians, it seems, who, uh, though they are no longer in the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, they are not yet in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. They are stuck somewhere in between in the wilderness of the spiritual slump, no longer a slave, but not fully free. Something else has become their first love, perhaps. If we were to survey randomly, say, 50 of you, I would venture, just based upon my experience as a pastor, my own journey as a Christian, and now my ministry to pastors, that in a group of 50, if I were to ask you to gauge the level of your intimacy and vitality in Christ on a scale of 1 to 10, I would bet 30, 40, maybe even 50% of us would say we are 4 to 6 right now in terms of intimacy with Christ. That's a slump. And every player in a slump will analyze the stat sheet because the stats don't lie. Players who care will look at their last 10, 20, 30 at-bats. And they'll look at their on-base percentage, their slugging percentage, how many times they walked, how many times they struck out, grounded out, flew out, got a hit how well they did with the curveball, the fastball, the screwball. They'll just look at all of that because they care. Christians have a stat sheet too. The at-bat for the Christian is every time we are up at the plate with a chance to love God or not love God in word, thought, or deed. So, the last time you were up at the plate, heard a racist or sexist joke at the office, did you confront it or laugh at it? Get a hit or strike out, love God or not? The last time uh, you were home alone with the computer, tempted to go places you should not go, did you get a hit or strike out? Love God or not? The last time you had a chance to forgive someone who hurt you or retaliate, did you get a hit or strike out, love God or not? 
The last time you had a chance to use your words to build someone up or break someone down, did you get a hit or strike out, love God or not? Who we become on the playing field of life is determined by the accumulation of decisions we make to love God or not love God in word, thought, or deed. But maybe you're still wondering, am I in a slump? I don't know. I'm not sure. Those are the stats. Here are some symptoms, slump symptoms. If you find yourself reading the Bible less, or maybe even not at all, because you deep down doubt that you will receive a word from the Lord for you from the word of the Lord, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you find yourself praying less or not at all because you are too disappointed with God or you believe he's disappointed with you, you may be in a slump. If fellowship with other Christians, especially those who are on a spiritual streak, seems more painful than productive, like a root canal or colonoscopy, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you're seeking escapes, diversions, from having to face the reality of your slump through food or movies or work, uh, reruns of Law and Order, Duck Dynasty, and if things are really bad, Downton Abbey, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you find yourself uh, thinking about God less and fantasizing about sin more, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you have stopped believing and hoping that your best days in Christ are before you and not behind you, you may be in a spiritual slump. In my research on the baseball slump, I discovered that the issue for players that keeps them stuck in a slump is not mechanics. It's despondence, the loss of hope that they'll ever hit the ball like they once did. And I think the same is true for Christians, stuck in a slump. And when we find ourselves in a slump, if we can admit that, the next thing we often want to do is just get ourselves out of it. What do I need to do next? And the truth is, if you got yourself in a slump, chances are you're not going to be the one to get yourself out of it. You need a force outside of you. What I love about Wesleyan Christianity is also what concerns me, actually. I love how we refuse to use God as a crutch to do for us what he calls us to do for him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But I also think we sometimes forget that there are many times in life when we need God to do for us what we absolutely cannot do for ourselves. If you find the tire of your spiritual car stuck in a muddy rut, you don't step on the gas because you only wedge your tire deeper. You need a force outside of you, a tow truck, a tow truck of grace to pull you out. So did David. And guess what? He got one. After that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad chapter in David's life, 2 Samuel 11, After we read that horrific headline, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord, here's the next sentence. This is a chapter that God wrote literally and figuratively for David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, 
But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. That's a bit weird. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your hands. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. Talking about Absalom, David's son, later on. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, finally, I have sinned against the Lord. Nine months after his sin with Bathsheba, finally David confesses. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I don't know if there are two sentences in the Old Testament that depict the gospel quite like these two. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, the problem of the human condition. Next sentence, chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, the beauty of God's grace. These two chapters together are the gospel. I used to think that the Lord sent Nathan to David to get David, to sort of shove his face in his shame, you know, to prove to David he's not going to get away with this. But the truth is, David's life was already off the rails. And if God didn't send Nathan to David, he would have stayed stuck in that slump. But as a result of God sending Nathan, David got out of the slump, back on a streak. Grace. God says, I anointed you, I saved you to David, I delivered you. You took, you struck, you killed David. You, you despised my word and you despised me, God says to David. The word for despised is beza, Hebrew word. It means to accord little value or worth to someone or something. It's the same word used to describe how Goliath looked on David. He despised him. It's the same word used to describe how Michael, David's wife, looked on David when he was dancing half naked before God. So David knows what it's like to be bazed, despised. And now he's despising God and God's word. How does God respond? The Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord has taken away your sin, David. You're not going to die. John 1.16, one of my favorite verses, 
says this. Out of the fullness of God, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace is all over David's story. Look at the end of chapter 12, the chapter that God wrote. Verses 24 to 31. These these verses often get skipped or skimmed, but they're they're just chucked full of grace. I want you to look at them. Put them up on the screen. Uh, In the first section, uh, verse 24 and following of chapter 12, uh, David and Bathsheba, this couple whose initial coming together was adulterous, has a second child. It's Solomon, but God gives him a new name. He names him Jedediah, which means loved of the Lord. An adulterous couple has a child, and God loves the child. Grace upon grace upon grace. The next section. So as I mentioned, David is bored in his boxers when kings are supposed to go off the war. He's hanging out in the palace, sends Joab, his commander, to do his fighting. And now Joab has pretty much won the battle against the Ammonites. He's shorted up. But he sends word to David. He says, David, you need to come on to the battlefield because if you don't come here and the battle ends and, and we win as we're going to, I will get the credit for it and the city will be named after me, Joab. So come here so the city is named after you. Wow, what a friend. And a friend like that is a grace upon grace upon grace. And then the last chunk in that chapter, uh, David is rusty. He hasn't picked up a sword or a bow in about a year. He gets his armor on, he goes out to the battlefield, and guess what? He's still got it. He wins. Grace upon grace upon grace. Perhaps the greatest grace, though, in David's life is that... uh, The legacy, the headline we remember him most for is not the thing that David had done to displease the Lord. The phrase we recognize David for most and remember most is that David was a man after God's own heart. Grace upon grace, whose poetic prayers called the Psalms have inspired billions of people throughout the years. Grace upon grace upon grace. If you find yourself stuck in a slump, here's what I know. Not because I know you, but because I know God. God will dispatch a Nathan or two or three or four to you to pull you out of the slump and get you back on a streak again. The Nathan he sends to you may be disappointment, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship. It may be discontentment, miserable emptiness, and you're not sure why. It might be a sermon, it might be a scripture, it might be an extravagant gift that someone gives you out of the blue. It might be music, movie. Uh, It could be an enemy. It could be confrontation. I mentioned that Mickey Mantle had lots of slumps in his life, not so much in baseball, but in life. He was an alcoholic, a womanizer. Uh, Toward the end of his life, he became ill because of the alcoholism. And in the midst of his slump, God sent Nathan to Mickey Mantle 
Bobby Richardson, one of Mantle's former teammates who was a Christian and led Mantle to faith in Jesus Christ. I, uh, I made the mistake of coaching my son's uh, little league team when he was 8 to 10. Uh, my son, Zach, who's 14, back when he was 8 and uh, still thought I was cool, went from, from coach's pitch to kid pitch. In coach's pitch, when he was seven, uh, a machine pitched the ball, and it pitched the ball over the plate at the same speed every time. Same spot, same speed. So all kids had to do was just, without even looking at the ball sometimes, just kind of swing the bat, and they would hit it well. So Zach, as a seven-year-old, was on a streak, man. He just could hit the ball. And then he went up to kid pitch at the age of eight, and now kids are pitching the ball to him at various speeds, and at various locations, mostly at his head. <laughs> and in the first two games, uh, Zach, my son, got hit with the ball like three times. So for the rest of the season, I watched my son, Zach, as the pitcher was winding up and ready to throw the ball, go like this and swing. And the home plate's over here, and he's backing out. And there's no way he's going to hit the ball when he's that far from the plate. I watched him do this all year. Terrible slump. And I would yell stuff out to him, you know. Zach, hang in there. The ball's not going to hurt you. Take the hit. Take the hit. Get on base. He didn't listen. You can do it. You're better than this, son. I've seen you hit the ball. I knew my son, Zach, was made not for the slump but for the streak. I knew he had it in him. He was, pl he was better than he was playing. And I remember at some point... Uh, thinking to myself, man, I wish I could just for a minute jump into Zach's body and do for him what he can't do for himself. But I can't. But God did. God saw the human race stuck in a horrible slump and he jumped into our flesh, blood, and bone to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he took all kinds of hits on the chin, all kinds of pitches to his body, and he hit the ball out of the park for us. God did not just send Nathan to David. God sent Jesus to us. Call that grace. But grace like that is not cheap. It invites a response. So I want to I invite you to consider a response, a 3D response, if you will. Write this down or remember it. Detest, disclose, decide. Detest, thoughts, disclose, words, decide, actions. To test. What do you detest? What grosses you out? What do you hate? For me, it's vinegar, egg salad, junior high kids playing basketball, <laughs> political news reporting. If only I would hate my slump like I detest those things. Because if you, if you don't detest the slump, if you become comfortable in the slump, it will persist. You gotta hate it. After David was confronted by Nathan, he wrote Psalm 51. It's a love-hate psalm. David focuses first on 
uh, God's love, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, wipe out my transgressions. So he's focused on God's love, and then naturally he begins to detest his sin. Surely I was sinful from birth. I hate my sin. Love to hate. Don't hate yourself because you love sin. Hate your sin because you love God. There's a difference. So, so pray and ask God to, to, to give you a hatred for your slump, to detest it. And then next, disclose. David wrote Psalm 32 after he was confronted. And after he wrote, or in the psalm it says, um, if it would come on the screen, it'd be great. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 32 or just look at it later. Uh, David says, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. Um, secret sin sabotages the soul. Concealment kills everything. It kills us physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. And David experienced that by keeping his sin with Bathsheba in the dark for nine months. Then he said, the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. It's like God is the cosmic interrogator. He put David in the interrogation room, trying to get a confession out of him. Not to put David in prison, but to get David out of the prison his secret slump had already put him in. The goal of God's conviction is not guilty condemnation, but gracious liberation. And David says, after the hand of God was heavy upon me, then I confessed everything. Three different Hebrew words. Transgressions, iniquities, sins, everything. The time he pulled that girl's hair in third grade, he confessed everything. And then he says, and you, God, forgave the guilt of my sin. So often, When we confess our sins to God, the penalty for sin is gone. But the guilt is still there until we confess, disclose our slump to another human being. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other and you will see miraculous healing. We get the pray to God for each other part, but I wonder how well we do it, confess your sins to each other. Miracles of healing, financial, spiritual, physical, emotional, will not happen, according to James, without confession of sin to each other. So the next time you're walking through the building and someone looks you in the eye and says, how you doing? Don't offer the Facebook post response. Everything's coming up roses, having a great day. Take off the mask. Look that person in the eyes, if it's a person you trust, and say, I am stuck in a spiritual slump. Pray for me. Counsel me. Walk with me. Disclose the slump, or it will have a power over you. Finally, decide. Actions. Uh, David wrote Psalm 101. I call it the will of David because 12 times in eight verses he says, The word will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's a series of decisions David made, drastic and basic, to make sure he would 
stay away from the slump and on a spiritual streak. Some of us just need to make some basic decisions. I'll hit 100 balls a day like I did back in my rookie season. I'll watch film of my swing once a week. I'll meet with my hitting coach twice a week. I'll read the Gospel of John in the morning, first half hour of the day, and I'll journal my prayer to God. I'll meet with my spiritual mentor or accountability partner every two weeks. I'll get back engaged in ministry using the gifts God has given me. It might just be a basic thing like that, that maybe you let go of in your game. Could be drastic. Mike Schmidt, famed Hall of Famer, said when things were going really bad, uh, if you would have told me I had a better chance of hitting the ball with my bat to the pitcher, I would have tried it. I would try anything. Maybe for some of us, it's just a drastic decision. Selling a car, giving the proceeds to a family in poverty. Maybe it's a change of careers. Maybe it's moving to a new home and a place where there's need. Maybe it's going on the mission field. Maybe it's having a hard conversation with someone in which you need to say, I forgive you or I'm sorry. Something probably that God has been inviting you to do for the last few months or years. You put it off. And when we do that, it puts us in a slump. Frank Robinson uh, had one of the greatest rookie seasons ever. In his second year, he went zero for 20. Didn't hit the ball in a slump. He says, looking back on that time, I thought I would never hit the ball again. But as you know, if you know baseball, he did hit the ball again. Made it into the Hall of Fame. The slump was not his legacy. David made it into the Hall of Fame, too. Call it the Hall of Faith. It's Hebrews 11. The slump was not his legacy. There is the name of David listed with the likes of Abraham, Moses, Gideon. If you find yourself in a slump, there is a silver lining for you. If you can access the grace of God and respond to it, God will pull you out of your slump and get you back on a streak again so that you are a greater spiritual slugger than you actually were before the slump began. It's called redemptive grace.